Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. This week, I'm so very excited to be joined by Dave Burgess. Dave is the New York Times bestselling author of Teach Like a Pirate, co-author of P is for Pirate, and the president of Dave Burgess Consulting, Inc., Dave has quickly become an inspirational leader in the educational community by providing powerful and innovative books, keynotes, and professional development. Dave, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my absolute pleasure to be on the show. Thank you for having me. And Dave, as you know, the show is centered on leadership development. I would love to hear your personal leadership journey and how you went from the classroom to the president of your own publishing and consulting company. Well, so I think it was dissatisfaction. (laughs) <laughs> is what, what got me there is that I was traveling around. I was doing the Teach Like a Pirate program and uh, I didn't have a book, didn't have anything like that. And uh, I was offered a publishing contract, read the publishing contract, went straight up into my hotel room, Googled publishing contracts because I thought she was trying to cheat me. I really thought she was trying to cheat me. And then when I Googled publishing contracts, I came to find out she was not trying to cheat me. That's what they look like. And to me, the only thing missing was a ski mask and a gun. I was like, wait a second now. I'm going to write this book. It's my intellectual property. I'm going to travel around and speak about it. I'm going to build a social media platform and you make how much money and I make how much money. It just didn't make any sense to me at all. And they wanted to take creative control of my project. They wanted to do all these things. So we did a ton of research into the industry and we decided, hey, the publishing industry is based on an outdated model. And whenever you see something that's based on an outdated model, like a lot of people feel about education right now, it's time for it to be disrupted. And so we formed our own publishing company and we put out Teach Like a Pirate right from our house, right at the kitchen table off a laptop. Then this crazy thing happened, Joshua. It exploded. <laughs> it went wild. You, you always, when you put a book out, you never know what's going to happen. I certainly didn't know what was going to happen with my book, but you know, I had the good fortune to have it go viral and have it explode. And so other people started to come to us and say, hey, how are you doing this? We don't want to sign those contracts either. How are you getting this book in front of so many people? And so we finally decided it's time to just drive some of these big companies crazy. We'll start signing these people that we run across. And so now we publish over 60 different books and we still run the business. I run it with my wife, Shelly, run the business right here from our house. And so as your time as a teacher and in the education world, what was one impactful experience you had that enhanced your skills as a leader? I think one of the key turning points for me was agreeing to do the very first Teach Like a Pirate workshop. And here's how this exactly went down. I met my department chair, who's a friend of mine for lunch. He came in excited. He said, hey, I just got to put on the professional development committee for the district. And I thought to myself, how cool would it be if you put together a workshop based on some of that crazy stuff you do down in your room that nobody understands? But then he paused and he said something that kind of changed my life. He said, I don't think you can. The more I think about it, I think that your success in the classroom is just kind of you. I think it's personality driven. I'm not sure it's something you could teach to other people. Well, I took that as a challenge. And so I signed up to do a full day workshop for the peers of my district. Drove away from that meeting going, oh my God, what have I done? I don't have a workshop. And so I was forced into a position where I was going to be standing for, you know, six hours in front of my peers, my colleagues, and I better have something to say. And so I think that was an important point for me because sometimes you have to leap and you have to grasp opportunity before you're ready. If you wait until you feel you're ready to always take that next leap, that next jump, that sees that opportunity, it'll be stagnant, right? And so I think being willing to take a risk and to take that leap and to say, I'm going to do a workshop before I even had one was a turning point for me. In your experience, what leadership skills were the most difficult to develop? 
I think one of the skills that's most difficult to develop is how to bring people along who are maybe uh, resistant to the message, who are maybe, it's not that they're bad people, it's not that they don't care about kids. It's not that they honestly believe that what they're doing is in the best interest of students. And you might have a different standpoint and how to come to some sort of consensus, how to come to sort of agreement, how to move someone forward from an entrenched stance. I think that's one of the most difficult things that leaders can do is to build, to take something from a grassroots level and to build momentum around it. And so I think, I think that's one of the, the key skills that a leader needs. And you have an incredible pulse on the future of education as you travel around the world. What is the largest barrier to success of our students? One of the things that I rail about quite often is the overemphasis on standardized test scores and an emphasis on measuring things, which I don't think are the most important things that happen in schools. If the measurement for success is something which is not the most important stuff that's happening in the school, that's where the, the focus tends to go. I think moving towards empowering students and allowing students to have a little more choice, allowing students to explore some of their passions and interests, incorporating some more innovations, teaching entrepreneurship, uh, all these kind of things are important things that, that schools can do. And if you have an overemphasis on that test score, that number at the end of the year, in my book I wrote about this isn't fantasy football. For example, I can remember my son's friend, he's a, he lives down the street, watching the Chargers play and cheering. He's a Charger fan for life. Cheering when Vincent Jackson dropped a pass from Philip Rivers. Like, I'm like, why, why did you just cheer that? He's like, well, the, my opponent has Vincent Jackson on his, on his uh, fantasy team. Well, you got to be kidding me. So the stats of the game, you care more about that than seeing your team win which is should be the most important thing right or you know, if someone watches a game and uh they're upset because rather than be the player that scored the touchdown their player had the key block which opened up the hole that allowed the team to score the touchdown well that didn't show up on the fantasy football stat sheet so they don't care about it and they're upset that they didn't hand the ball off to their player right, right. and so that's what i mean that we when you're when you're so focused on those numbers and the numbers are arbitrary and not necessarily reflective of what the most powerful things that are happening in the game the same thing's happening the same thing's happening in school when I, when i'm doing the civil rights unit for example what do I care more about? That my students know all the different features of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, or that they're willing, able, and have the courage to fight racism, fight oppression, stand up to injustice. Well, it's the latter, right? We want them to be able to do that, but the, that's not on the test. The, the features of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 are on the test. And so I'm not saying that you can't do both, but I think that's one of the, the, the areas that gets me most upset in education right now. Mm-hmm. And so as a lead learner, how are they able to instill discovery, growth, and innovation with your staff? So I think modeling it is one of, the, one of the most important things. I had a confrontational tweet that I sent. I think it's been a couple of years ago now, but it was, it was fairly confrontational. Basically, it said, don't talk to me about creativity and collaboration if your staff meetings and professional development model none of this. I think as leaders, we have to walk the talk. What you provide for teachers should look similar to what you want to see in your classrooms. Uh, if your staff meeting is reading down bullet points on, on PowerPoint slides and regurgitating information, which could just as easily be sent in an email and is boring, lacks engagement, and then you turn around and say, you can't understand why your teachers don't do anything innovative and creative, I think that you're part of the problem. And we used to have a way, uh, I have a buddy, his name is John Beret, taught with me at West Hills. 
And one of the ways that we would talk about judging a staff meeting or professional development held on our campus is when we, when we leave, are we more excited and enthusiastic and or more prepared to go into our classrooms to do the work? And if you can't tick either of those boxes, then I don't think that was a very good professional development or staff meeting. Mm-hmm. And I've heard you use the analogy of a gift shop in referring to education. Will you share your theory on that? And as an administrator, how can we bring that to life? Yeah, so it has to do with uh, reframing how we look at homework is one of the the primary ways I use this. Mm -hmm. And so, like when you go to a theme park and you go on like the exciting rides, like the Jurassic Park ride, the mummy ride, the Excalibur ride, the things like that, right? You go on this wild ride and then the ride stops. They lift the little belt or bar off of you, right? And then where do they leave you? They empty you in the back of the gift shop. And then with your kid, you have to walk through the entire gift shop, which by the way, has been themed around that ride that you just went on. Okay, so you get off the Jurassic Park ride and there's dinosaur sets and there's books about dinosaurs and DVDs about dinosaurs. You get off the mummy ride and there's books uh, about ancient Egypt and the and the pyramids and mummification. And there's little Egypt things with Egyptian symbols on it and all that kind of stuff. Excalibur ride. There's swords and shields. When I go to SeaWorld and I go through the shark encounter, uh, I get on the little moving sidewalk and you go through the little glass tunnel. There's sharks swimming over your head. As soon as you get off that escalator or the little moving sidewalk, where are you? You're in the gift shop. Shark tooth necklaces, DVDs about sharks. Now you tell me, when my son gets into that gift shop at that moment, what does he want? He wants all of it because he just saw sharks. They were just swimming over top of his head. And he's like, dad, how many teeth? Look, they have rows of teeth. What happens if they bite you? And he's asking all these questions about sharks. And now he's fascinated by sharks because he just had this powerful experience and he wants to know more. Well, that's how we have to look at school. You have to create a powerful learning experience for students first. And then you empty them into the gift shop of how you can go further. Here's resources. Are you interested in this now? Here's some resources for you. Here's a project you can do. Here's a challenge you can take on. Here's a way you can explore more and so but it always goes back to that powerful learning experience first and then when you create that powerful learning experience you don't then kill it by what you send home like worksheet packets packets and stuff like that that destroy the love of learning you take them into the gift shop where they can go and do these these wonderful things uh, now that they're self-interest so i think we need to do a better job of emptying kids into the gift shop and so you probably have received criticism about your message and if so how did you work through that I receive all kinds of criticism about it and you have to be reflective and say is what they're saying uh, something that's good feedback or are they just trolling in hater <laughs> and and I've had both right and so and, and so sometimes I'll, I'll tell you a piece of feedback so maybe someone will say to me hey they'll say there's not a lot of ed tech in your book I noticed that not a lot of ed tech integration and what I'll say to them is this you know why there's not a lot of ed tech in my book because I wasn't very good at it. And I wanted to speak only about things that I could authentically talk about. If it's if it's in my book, I did it and was successful with it. If it's not in my book, it's probably not in there because I wasn't good at it. Teach Like a Pirate was not meant to be the encyclopedia of teaching. Teach Like a Pirate was not meant to be the teaching Bible, right? It was my story. It's my manifesto about what I feel about education and how I think we can move things forward. But that's why it was important to start to publish some other people's story too. I feel like people always said, you're gonna write Teach Like a Pirate part two. I'm not, I'm not gonna, I told my story. And now I see my role and Shelly's role is finding other people 
who can complement the message and help them amplify their ability to tell their story and to share their message. And so that's what we're super fired up about now. And a lot of people consider you a change agent in the industry. What is one area you want to change in education? I worked very hard to try to get teachers connected. Even to this day, when I ask people uh, how many are connected educators, how many are on Twitter, how many are, you know, things like that, it's still actually a, a very small percentage. And when for, for those of us who are connected or on Twitter, we kind of get this sense that we're all there. <laughs> because we're all kind of preaching to the choir to each other about getting connected and all that kind of stuff like that. And then you go do an event and there's a thousand people there and you're like, oh no, there's like 50 of us on Twitter and 950 of us not. And so uh, that's one of the things I'm, I'm trying to get more and more teachers to get connected. Becoming a connected educator changed my life. And I think it's uh, changed the lives of a lot of educators I know. And so I think that's, we no longer have to be limited by the ideas in our system. We no longer have to be limited by what the professional development is that's provided to us. We can go out and find those, uh, those things from, we can collaborate on a global scale and bring ideas back into our system from everywhere. And plus, Again, this goes to amplifying your impact. You can take what you're doing, which is powerful, and share it out on a global scale by being connected as well. So that's one of the things I'm fighting for. What are some characteristics that you believe every leader should possess? So you have to have courage. I love what Maya Angelou said about this. And basically she said that the courage was the most important of all of the virtues because without courage, you can't practice the others. And so one of the things that people ask me sometimes is, hey, so I'm at this school. I would like to change the school culture. And uh, I just got here and there's some apathy. There's some negativity. There's some people that are excited. And like, I, I don't know how to pull this all together. Right. And so I'll tell them the story. I'll say, hey, listen, if you wanted to build a giant snowball and you went out into the snow, you try to grab it all up in your arms at one time, what would happen? It would crumble away and you'd wind up with nothing. That's not how you build a giant snowball. The only way you can build a giant snowball is you get a little bit in your hands and you shape it and you mold it and you pack it tight. And then when that's shaped and molded, you add a little bit to it and you work with that and you add a little more, a little bit more. Eventually it gets big enough where you can put it on the ground and you can roll it. And when you start to roll it, the snow starts to stick. That's the only way you build a giant snowball. That's the only way you change culture at a school too. You can't just stand up one day and say, this year we're going to be creative and innovative or pass out eye patches. This year we're pirates and, and expect that there's going to be, there's going to be a hundred percent buy-in, right? You're not going to get for everybody all at once. You have to find that group that does want to be a part of something new, does want to be a part of something innovative and creative, and you work with them and you focus your energy on them. And then the enthusiasm and the energy that radiates out from that group starts to attract other people in. But too many leaders allow their energy to be dissipated by the, by trying to get everybody all at once. They, they get dissipated by working with the people who are apathetic and the people who are negative, rather than taking that energy, which there's a limited amount of, and really focusing it on where it can be the most powerful, that those people that do want to move forward with you. If you wait for everyone in your system to be ready to move forward before you move forward, you're never going anywhere. Find the people that want to go with you and start moving. So I've had multiple conversations lately in regards to leadership burnout. You've always seemed to have a ton of energy. What's your secret? So the ability to put it to turn it on and off <laughs> at the right times, right? And so and I can have a I can have a, a very calm conversation, and I don't go running around my house ranting and raving, and and leaping around. But when I step in front of a group of teachers or students, I turn it on. I'm I talk about turning on the propane, 
in, in the classroom, for example. Uh, look, it's it's all about turning on the propane. You have you have raw steak. You know, first of all, I don't put my steak down on a cold grill. I preheat it, right? You build up that mystery, curiosity, anticipation, so that when, when you do drop your content, it sizzles, right? And then plus, when I step in front of a group of people, I have a simple goal. I'm gonna light this place on fire and I'm gonna burn it down around them, okay? And you better wear some fire retardant clothes when I step up, because I'm gonna go off. I'm gonna douse myself with the gasoline of enthusiasm and spark it with the flames of inspiration. I'm gonna light up when I get in front of people, right? But then I'm gonna step off, I'm gonna step off the stage and I'm gonna be able to talk to you nice and calm like this. I also think that you have to be willing to honor your outside interests and passions. Teach Like a Pirate is a mindset. It's a way of looking around the world and saying, how can I use that? And so the more you're able to honor some of your outside passions and interests and develop new ones, it gives you creative ammunition. That's time invested, which not only can recharge you, right? But also it's going to give you some ideas and, and, and creative ammunition that you're going to eventually be able to bring back into your system. Every hobby or any outside passion I've gotten into has always helped my teaching. Mm -hmm. It's always brought me ideas. What do you wish you had known before going out beyond the classroom extending your voice, writing a book, and building your own company? I'm not sure I would change my journey at all. I think it was all important. So here's what happens to us sometimes at, at uh, Dave Rivers Consulting Inc. Someone will come to us and say, hey, I want to write a book. And then I'm going to go around and I'm going to go speak and I'm going to build and get on social media and I'm going to get involved and connected and uh, I'm going to, that's the way I'm going to make a lot of money. <laughs> that makes me nervous. First of all, if they're getting into it for the money, it makes me nervous. But secondly, don't write a book and go speak. Go speak and then write a book. Because when you go speak, you take your audience message out of an authentic audience and you get to see what resonates. You get to see what people are excited about. You get to see what people want to ask you about and get more information after you're done. You get to look at your social media feed and see which of the which parts of the of your presentation really hit people. You get to see what slide goes up on the screen that they all take their their phones out and want to get a picture of it. And you get a chance to hone and craft your message in front of that authentic audience. And then only then do you come back and you write that book. And so I think that they do it backwards too often. So I love to work with speakers and bloggers, speakers, bloggers, and podcasters, Joshua, because you've already been in front of an authentic audience. You know what, what resonates and what doesn't resonate. And so then when you pull it together, I think it's going to be more powerful. And so for those starting their leadership journey, what advice do you have for them? I think it goes back to what I said at the beginning, which was sometimes you have to uh, seize opportunities and take that leap before you're ready. And for leaders who would like to see more innovation and creativity and risk-taking in their system, I would offer this piece of advice. And people say that all the time. I want, I want teachers who are innovative. I want them to be risk-takers and all this. Okay, so here's the reality. We don't really know if you support innovation and risk-taking until we see how you react when somebody fails. It's very easy to say it, and it's very easy to be pro-innovation and risk-taking when you're talking about maybe some of the superstars in your system, okay? But what when someone takes that first risk, tries that first innovative thing, and it's a total and complete disaster at your school site? Do you come in in a judgmental and evaluative uh, way? If you do, you'll see less risk-taking and innovation in your school system. 
Or do you come in as a person who is a support and as someone who is celebrating the risk that they took? And as someone to say, hey, thank you for trying something new. That's amazing. I'm so proud of you. Let's see how we can figure out how to make this work next time. So if you come in as a support system and as someone who is celebrating their risk, then you'll see more innovation at risk taking in your system. But I think too many people come in with that evaluative, judgmental attitude, and then people are afraid to try something new. You said you had over 60 books. Is there one book in particular or maybe a couple books that may help our aspiring leaders? Oh gosh, we have so many. I, the, uh, I, I hate to choose one. <laughs> um, I'll have authors and sending me DMs on Twitter like, hey, what are you talking about? What about my book? If you go to DaveBurgessConsulting.com and hit the book link, uh, the books are set up in categories. So we have a whole leadership culture and leadership category there. And they're going to be fi- they're going to find unbelievable messages from unbelievable educators. And if they have any questions about a book that might be perfect for their situation, their role, or what they're looking, the change they're looking to lead, I'd be happy to help them. So in addition to your teaching position, you started speaking at conferences and you were very active on social media. How did you start to find your voice beyond your classroom or your school? Yeah, so... I always encourage people to go speak, submit conference proposals everywhere, local level, state level, national level, get out there. And when you do that, a powerful thing happens. When you have to kind of pull together your secret sauce, your magic recipe, what makes you successful in the classroom or as a leader, and present that to other people, it forces you to become very uh, self-reflective, very intentional about your practice. That's what happened for me. When I agreed to do the Teach Like a Pirate workshop, all of a sudden I had to go back and say, hey, like, how come this works? Why, why does this work? And why doesn't this work? And why do, why do I, why did I do this? Or how did I come up with that idea to begin with? And it forced me to become much more intentional about my practice, much more reflective, and it made me a better teacher. So when you start to when you have to pull together a workshop or a session, I think it's going to make you not, not only is that a powerful way for you to spread your message, but it's going to even make what you do personally uh, back in your school system more powerful. In closing, what is the most enjoyable aspect of leadership? Empowering other people. It's finding people's strengths, their talents, and empowering them to find their voice and to have that kind of that shared, that shared model of leadership where it's not the boss, it's the person who is trying to actively serve and empower the people in their system. And so when you see other people find their voice and to find their role and, and to do powerful things, I think that's, that's where the fulfillment comes. And how can our listeners connect with you on social media? I live on Twitter. I am at Burgess Dave. So my name just flipped around to Burgess Dave. The hashtag people often use to talk about these ideas are T-L-A-P for leaders. We have lead like a pirate. The lead lap hashtag, L-E-A-D-L-A-P is a great hashtag. If you're an Instagram person, D-B-C underscore I-N-C. I'm doing more on Instagram. So check me out on D-B-C underscore Inc. on Instagram. And Dave, I wanted to highlight real quick too, on Twitter, you have Twitter chats. I know that you do the T-LAP chat and then also um, your wife does the lead lap chat so what is that all about yeah so twitter chats are a fantastic way to connect and collaborate with people every week monday night eight o'clock central time we hold t lap chat 
it's for one hour and it's a chance for us all, you know, at the same time to get together and talk about a certain topic. It changes every week, but it's basically centered around passion, creativity, engagement. And it's a way that you can tap into a community of people who are going to be positive and uplift you and support you. And so that's a powerful place. And then Shelly with Beth Huff, her co-author for Lead Like a Pirate, run the Lead Like a Pirate chat, Lead Lap. And that's at 9.30 Central Time on Saturday morning. And that's a, now a 30, This starting this year, it's a 30-minute format. So from 9.30 to 10 Central Time, uh, they talk about a, a wide array of leadership issues, topics. And that's a wonderful place to tap into a, a community of leaders that will also be positive and uplifting. Please continue to check out the Aspire podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and share your ratings and reviews. Don't forget to use the Aspire Lead hashtag as you continue the conversation on Twitter. Dave, thank you so much for being on the program. It was my pleasure. Thanks again for having me.